Everyone's familiar with the famous Mississippi River? Having to spell that, right? M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I, right? Over and over and over again. Uh, The Mississippi River is one of the world's major river systems in size, in habitat diversity, and biological productivity. It is also one of the world's most important commercial waterways and one of North America's great migration routes for both birds and for fishes. Today, the Mississippi River powers a significant segment of the economy in the upper Midwest. Barges and their tows move approximately 175 million tons of freight each year on the upper Mississippi River system through a system of 29 locks and dams. I didn't know any of that until... They probably taught us that in geography, but I forgot. It's also a major recreational source, resource for boaters, canoeists, hunters, anglers, and bird watchers, as well as offering many other outdoor opportunities. So we, we we know a lot about the Mississippi. I know more after reading that, but here's a question. Do we know the source of the Mississippi River? Maybe some of you... Geography students uh, can remember the source of the Mississippi River. Uh, But the source of the Mississippi River is Lake Itasca. I didn't know that, actually. Never even actually heard of that lake before until I read this illustration. There's a picture of it. Sunset is a very, very, very beautiful lake. However, today, most visitors barely even notice it. Even though it covers about 1.8 square miles and is the source, it is that which spawns the mighty Mississippi River. What do they come for? Well, they come for the mighty Mississippi. With all that the Mississippi does, all the benefits that it provides, it is absolutely nothing without its source, without Lake Itasca. And it seems like many people have forgotten that. I look at this and I see Christianity, especially Christianity in America, having a similar comparison. A lot of, lot of churches, a lot, a lot of people are just looking at all the benefits Everything that flows downstream, everything the church has to offer, but what is happening is they are forgetting about the source. There is a center of Christianity, a source from which everything else absolutely must flow from, a source from which our faith originates in, it's filled by, it's nourished by, it's identified by. And by no stretch of the imagination can this source be forgotten about. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. Judas has just left the building. It is now Jesus and his disciples. And this event begins the most important event in the life of Jesus Christ and for all of those who are called by his name. 
an event that becomes the source for our faith, that flows throughout history and flows through the lives of those who believe. Is that the very beginning, again, of what Jesus is talking to his disciples about? It is the source of all we do and all we are. We'll look at three aspects of the cross. The first aspect is the glorification through the cross of Jesus Christ. Verses 31 through 32. Therefore, when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus says to his disciples, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. How many people like Winston Churchill? Love Winston Churchill. He's just, I don't know, there's something about him that I just love. His leadership style, the way that he uh, handled the uh, World War II. And I especially love his speeches. Love his speeches. Uh, As a matter of fact, kind of preparing to uh, become a preacher, I would read his speeches to just see how he spoke to people, how he connected with people. Here's a speech that comes at a very, very crucial part of the the war. Here's a part of it, what he says, as he's trying to rally his nation and rally his troops. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must soon, very soon, be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all of Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Great speech. This was their finest hour. The phrase finest hour is often referred to uh, in a moment in someone's life when their best characteristics come through. When someone shines, when they do their best work, and that work is witnessed and exalted by others. I look at that speech that Churchill gave, and I, I see similarities about the work that Jesus is about to enter into except on a much, much grander scale, right? Our survival depends on what Jesus is about to do. Without, what, without the work that Jesus is about to 
engage in, you and I face not just a temporary period of darkness, but an eternity of darkness. Through the work that Jesus does, you and I can truly be set free. The fury, all the fury of the enemy must be turned not on us, but on him for our sake. With this work, you and I can enjoy a peace that does not just last a thousand years, but for all eternity. And after being with him for a thousand years, I'm pretty sure we're going to say this was his finest hour. The work, the cross of Jesus Christ is his finest hour. It is the hour of his glorification. That's what he is saying here. His finest hour is the work of the cross. It's an hour which he has now entered into immediately. As soon as Judas has left the building, Judas enters into darkness, Jesus enters into his glory. That glory becomes a reality. Yes, it's been set in motion for even before the foundations of the world, but now the, the work of the cross has begun. And it's begun when Judas walks out the door to go and betray him into the hands of humans, to the hands of the enemy. It's a little test for my hermeneutics class, right? When we see a bunch of words, right? We want to start saying, okay, he's trying to say something to us. And these words are repeated a few times in two verses, two verses, but not just notice the word, what, what is he saying about it? What is that connected to? What is this glorification of both Jesus Christ, the Son, and God the Father connected to? When we often think of our glory days, right? We, we say our glory days. We remember those glory days? We often think, I didn't have many glory days at all. They were, not, they were different days. I don't know what my parents would call them, but not my glory days. We, we often think of the time in our life when we shine, when we do our best, right? Ah, oh, remember the glory days when I was captain of the football team, and I, I threw that long touchdown pass, and it caught it, and people were cheering. They lifted me up on their shoulder. That was my, that was my finest hour. Those were the glory days. Or, or when I was prom queen, or, or whatever it is, it usually is associated with days that were wonderful, days that were great, when we shined our best, when we were winning, and every, everyone knew it. I can hardly imagine that you and I would associate our glory days with a time of extreme suffering and pain. But that is exactly what Jesus is doing here. The cross equals his glory. A period of time of horrendous suffering. Why? 
Why is this where he is most glorified? Why is this where the characteristics of God the Father and God the Son are put on display in, in, in a great measure? Because it reveals them to the world. It reveals his greatness and reveals the greatness of God the Father to the world. His compassion his perseverance, his love for humanity, his selfish, selflessness as he puts himself aside and gives his body, gives his life for others. His obedience, his willingness, his faithfulness, all for you and me. At no other time or event is Jesus Christ most glorified than in this moment. Because the characteristics of God the Father and God the Son are just put on full display for the entire world to see. Okay. We can, we can agree, right? We can amen that, right? We, amen. Woo! We can agree theologically. We can agree theoretically. But here's my question. Are you and I living it out practically? Because what does this say to us? What does this mean? I know I said this before, and I'll just probably say it again until we get to the final chapter of this book. This book has just really done me in. Uh, you come to the ministry, and you, 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 when you come to the ministry, you think you know everything. It's just, I, for me, it was that, you know, I think I had all the answers, and you think you know uh, everything that's important. But actually, we just said it this past week, you really don't know, you, you don't know what you don't know at the time. Uh, and you come in, and and if, if you forget that you need to allow the Holy Spirit to analyze your heart and your, your, your mind, your soul, as you go through stuff like this, you're missing, we're missing the point. I'm, I'd be missing the point. And when I come to a passage like this, I look at this passage and I say, am I really doing this in my life? Are we really doing this in, in my ministry Are you and I exalting the cross of Jesus Christ? Because that's what it means for us as a church. That's what it means for us as individuals. Because if, if, here, if it is here where Jesus Christ is, is most glorified and God the Father is glorified through him, then it goes for us that he is most exalted, he is most valued when the cross is lifted high. When, when the cross is valued when we're valuing it in our lives, when we're valuing it in our churches, and when we are lifting it high and valuing it in our community, the cross. It's the center point of our Christianity. It is what we are all about. And we can devalue the cross. We can take away from the cross through a lot of different ways. Legalism, any type of legalism. Any type of man-made self-righteousness, any following of laws or traditions and thinking those things 
are, are adding to my salvation or adding to my righteousness, it devalues the cross, devalues it. We just had this discussion in our class about following ceremonial laws and following these different laws. And we have to understand, anytime we are adding to God's grace, we are devaluing the cross. You and I are absolutely nothing apart from this work. Not in, the, in, in an insignificant sense, but we bring nothing to the righteousness that God offers us through Jesus Christ. Nothing. Nothing. And we can devalue that by any type of man-made rules or self-righteousness it takes away from it. How about in the life, in the life of our ministry and in the church? How do we devalue the cross? We devalue the cross when we exalt people. When we trust in our own wisdom, our own little techniques, and trust me, I am guilty of that, hands down trying to figure out the problems in my, in my own way through worldly methods, worldly solutions, that devalues the cross. Like Paul, we have to remember this. And we can have all the events we can have the best marketing strategies. We can have all the wonderful worship sounds. We can have all of these things, but if we're trusting in those things, we're taking away from the cross of Jesus Christ. We have to remember what Paul says. The gospel has what? The power to save. The power to transform us. We devalue the cross when we exalt other means and we trust in those means. Can we do those things? Absolutely. Do we rely on those things? No way. How about in my witnessing? And this one really got me. You know how I was saved? Someone preached this. They, weren't, they, they didn't fill me with a whole bunch of apologetic arguments. They didn't do all of them. Now, don't get me wrong. Those are important. But I found myself kind of wondering, is this enough? You know, don't I have to say all of these wonderful things to get this person to be convinced of Christianity instead of just relying on the power of the cross to do exactly what God did in my life in the life, lives of those who don't believe? And it, like I said, it doesn't mean that we don't try our best to understand how to communicate our faith, but we cannot rely on our own arguments. He says when he's lifted high, he's speaking of the crucifixion, he will what? Draw all men to himself. Do we trust that? Do we believe that? No matter what it is we do. This. We preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Is that message still foolish to this world? Absolutely. Can that dissuade us from preaching it even more? By no means whatsoever. 
because it's in that message is the full wisdom of God. Are people going to turn away from it? Are they going to mock it? Are they going to make fun of it? Absolutely. Does that mean it's not true? No. Does that mean that we need to find the next cool marketing strategy to make people come to church and get them to believe? No. Because when we do those things, we take away from the cross of Jesus Christ. How many people want to see Jesus Christ and God the Father glorified? Hopefully everyone. Everyone should be raising their hand right now. If not, see me after church. How many people want to see people saved? What do we do? Exalt the cross. That's how it's going to happen. This is what it means to glorify Jesus. When we value, when we trust, and when we exalt His work on the cross. So the first part is the glorification through the cross. The second part is the complication with the, with the cross. Not in a bad sense, but you'll see what I'm saying here in a second. Verse 33. Or complication because of the cross. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. This past week, I had a, uh, an experience that I never had before in my life uh, with my daughter. My daughter had gone away to camp uh, for an entire week, and I, by because of this weird Christian Berean camp, I could not contact her at all. She was not allowed to have cell phones. Uh, she couldn't text me. N- nothing. Nothing at all. Now, I've been away from my family before, right? I've been away. But I would always make it a point to, to just call them all the time because I, I miss them. But when you're away, it's different, isn't it? Because when you're away, you're doing fun stuff. Usually, I'm away fishing, so... I am preoccupied with fishing, you know, come back and then I'll, I'll talk to my family then. But this time, it, it, it's radically different when someone leaves you, isn't it? Because you're surrounded by the reminders of that person. And you miss them more. As you go through those periods in your life when they used to be there and they're no longer there, you feel that pain more acutely. That was the way it was with my daughter. I, you're like, Mark, get over it. It's just a week. She needs to, I understand. This is, I'm processing. I'm, I'm talking out loud, right, to process this. Because I start thinking, what is it going to be like when she gets married? And now I'm like, <laughs> just, well, I can't do it. I can't. I don't want to do it. I'm like, is there some way you can just live in the house or live next door? I say that now, and then that'll probably change later on. But that's how I feel. I, I missed her, too, because I wanted to share things with her that I couldn't share. Uh, one of them, we, we, sh- we do this game, Breath of the Wild, together, kind of together. She has her own guy. I do, I do my guy, and we're kind of tracking along with each other. And I, I beat a divine beast. Yeah, thank you. I know. It's like, that's my glory day right right there. There you go. I, 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 and I wanted to share that with her, but I couldn't. I couldn't. And then when I needed her, 
to ask her a question about how to do a certain thing in the game. I wanted to ask her, but I couldn't. So then I had to swallow my pride and reference the book, which I haven't wanted to reference, but I feel like I can always reference her because we're in this relationship with this game. I missed her. That's what happens when those we love leave. Those we confided in, those we shared with, those who we relied on, when they go, we feel their absence acutely. Jesus is preparing his disciples for this very thing. He's letting them know things are going to be a little different. Things are going to change. The cross is so wonderful. The cross is so beautiful. The cross is absolutely necessary. But it also means that Jesus has to go. It also means that his disciples and you and I aren't going to get to see him for a little while. We can't come with him just yet. You're going to look for me. You're going to seek for me to no avail. You won't find me. They'll be left alone. Not orphans, because he promises later on. He's going to send them the Holy Spirit, but that relationship is not going to be the same. It's not going to be what it used to. They're not going to be able to pull him aside and say, hey, what do, you, what do you think about this? He's going. Where he's going, they can't come. I look at the way that he opens up this section, and it is absolutely wonderful. Listen to the way he addresses them. Little children. Or dear children. I love that because he, he's revealing his relationship to them. He's revealing his love for them, his care for them, his concern, and he's telling them when he says that, hey, I understand that this news is going to be kind of hard right now. This is going to be a little difficult for you to bear. And I love it because this is the only time it's used in the Gospel of John, right here. And Jesus gently just addresses them in this loving, affectionate, fatherly way as he prepares them for his departure. Later on, who's going to pick up on this phrase and use it in his own letter? John. He used it in his letters to his churches. He say, little children. Where did he get it from? Well, I think we know. Don't we feel like that sometimes? Little children who need the one that they love to comfort them, to speak to them. I know I do. Many, many times. I don't know how many times over the past few years I just said to myself, I just wish I could speak to Jesus face to face. 
I just need to talk to him. It's a struggle, isn't it? It's a struggle not seeing him. You know, how, how many of us would give five minutes, just five minutes, just to ask him a question or two? You know, maybe, maybe it has to do with a, a struggle that you're experiencing in your life and you just want to sit next to Jesus. You just ask him, hey, Jesus, can you help me get through this? Can you tell me what I have to do right now? Because I tell you what, I'm confused. I'm worried. I'm anxious. Or, or maybe you lost a loved one and you say, Jesus, can you just, can you pass on a message to them for me? Or can you tell me how are they doing up there? I miss them. Hey, Jesus, can you tell me how to, how to pastor a church during a pandemic? Because <laughs> this one's really, really got me now. Or, or just him coming into the room, right? You're like, okay, I'm good for about another 20 minutes, right? And then you're going to need him again. It's hard. It's faith. That's what faith is. But faith is hard. Not seeing him, not being able to talk to him, it's hard. He understands that. He knows that. presents difficulties and limitations because he's not here like that, is he? Whatever it is we're dealing with, probably be much easier if we could just sit down and talk to him or just to have a shoulder to cry on. He loved him, those disciples, so well. He taught them, he guided them, he laughed with them, he ate with them, he encouraged them, he reminded them, he showed them an example of what it means to follow him. They're going to miss him. And it makes faith difficult at times, doesn't it? We can't see him even if we tried, even if we asked for proof like Thomas. And we know, Jesus says, blessed are those who believe, but what? Don't see. Does it make it easy? No. Now we can understand why, why some unbelievers are like, why can't he just show himself? All right, we get it. It presents challenges. And even in witnessing, doesn't it? We're asking people to, yeah, okay. it's not like when, when the, the disciples were gathering each other and they're like, hey, come on, you want to meet Jesus? Yeah, he's right here. And Jesus is like, I'm Jesus, right? And there he's like, there's Jesus. And they're like, hey, would you like, would you like to meet Jesus? That's what we say to unbelievers. They're like, okay, where is he? That's the hard part. Let me, let me, give me a few minutes here. Let me explain to you. Well, he was alive. Yeah, he, he lived. Lived on earth, he's God, came down, became man, lived on earth, he suffered, died, was buried, but then he rose again. Now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Okay, do you believe? Do you want to meet him? Do, you see, do we see? It presents a challenge. 
It's the reality of the cross. The complication, the difficulty. That he, he's left us here, but he's left us here for what? For a purpose. And yes, we know he's coming back. He's promised us that. He's given us his Holy Spirit. But faith is still hard sometimes. He understands that. Prepares us for it. But also has an answer. So what, do we, what can we do? Or what are we to do while he's gone? And how can people see Jesus? Leads us to our third and final point. The continuation of the cross ministry. Verses 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Even as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples. If you have love. For one another. Stephen Colbert is a fourth grade teacher at Gates Elementary in Michigan who had planned to, on taking both of his daughters to their school's daddy-daughter dance. He then found out that the father of two of his former students, Avery Reese and her sister Olivia Reese, was hospitalized. So he decided to add two more daughters to his group. He talked to his own daughters about inviting them along, and they were on board with the plan. The entire Reese family was also delighted with the plan. Unfortunately, on that same day, the father, Luke, was taken off of life support and died two weeks before the dance. Colbert said this, I just don't want any of my students to be left alone, to feel like they're alone. As the word spread through the community, many offered to help to make the day extra special for the two girls. A limo company offered a discounted rate and a hair salon donated time to do the girls' hairs and nail, hair and nails. Parents at the school chipped in to buy the Reese girls' dresses for the dance, and another parent uh, purchased the four girls' corsages. Colbert and his daughters picked up Olivia and Avery in their glamorous limo. The girls were in shock. The older of the two looked at the limo and said, that's what we're taking? The last touch was four heart-shaped balloons that Colbert bought for the big day. Attached to those balloons were small tags that said, hashtag, be like Luke, be like their father. Colbert wanted to honor Luke Reese on that special day. Before getting out of the limo, he spoke to the girls. He said, I'm not trying to be your dad. I'm trying to be here with you. They got out of the limo, let the heart-shaped balloons fly. And they walked into a school and danced the night away. What do we do while he's gone? We step in. 
We love like Jesus. What a wonderful, wonderful example of what the church of Jesus Christ is to do. What their responsibility is as they wait for his return. Because it wasn't just the man, was it? It was the entire community. We can't be like Jesus perfectly, but we can try our best to love like him. And Jesus is giving them a responsibility, a continuation of his sacrificial love, a continuation of the cross-shaped love that while I'm gone, I want you to pour out the love that I have loved you with into the hearts of those around you, beginning here in the church. Love one another. How? Like I've loved you. What does that look like? I'm about to show you what that looks like. It is a sacrificial, selfless, compassionate, grace-filled, mercy-filled love. for each one of us who are in this room today and for those who are watching the church. That's what we do while he's gone. We love others like he loved us. It is a continuation of his ministry that culminates in this sacrificial love on the cross. It's a, it's a commandment. It's our responsibility, and it begins here in our fellowship. That the, we, we exalt Him the most, we're like Him the most, when we sacrifice ourselves for, for others. That is when we exalt Him the most. We exalt the cross when we love each other sacrificially. His love here for them, as I've loved you, is a fact. It's a fact. It's never more clearly seen than on the cross. And it happened in the past. Our love, that is commanded, is an expected love. And guess what? It's, it's not a fact. And it's in the present tense. It's not guaranteed. So that means that our love is an ongoing love. Every minute, every hour, every day, every month, every week, whatever it is, you and I are to continue to put aside ourselves for those in our fellowship, to love each other sacrificially. Easy, right? That's pretty easy. <laughs> do, you, do we, we know why Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 gives that love passage? What is that in the context of? That's in the context of the workings of the church, isn't it? Using our gifts and, and, and being around one another. And he's saying, look, this is what, it, this is what you need in order to function. But now, now we're seeing this is a commandment from Jesus Christ that this is the essence of what it means to be a disciple of his. Remember where it begins. This is his 
speech, his first part of this upper room discourse and where he's talking to them about his departure and their first responsibility is to love one another. Love one another. Wash each other's feet. Love one another. Serve one another. It's easy to love individuals when things are going great, right? It's easy easy to love each other when people are lovable, <laughs> right? It's easy, it's same with me, it's, you know, I'm easy to like or easy to love when I'm, I'm lovable, when I'm not, you know, loud and obnoxious, which is most of the time. It's, e- it's easy to love people whose feet smell like flowers, right? That's beautiful. Oh, I'll wash those feet all day long. You know, pretty, yeah, yay, I did it. But when their feet reek and they're filthy, It's easy to love people when all of our needs are being met, isn't it? It's easy to love in the church when the church is doing everything we want the church to do. When it's perfect, right? It's a perfect church. We're all happy. Everyone's happy. We don't, you know, oh, I'm loving. I love this church. It's harder to love when things aren't going the way we think they should or when people are not acting the way we think they should. This is love in the dirt. It's love in the hardships. It's love in the pain and the struggles, the sin, the offenses that people give us, the misunderstandings. It is a love that brings Him glory, and it's exactly what His love did on the cross. That's the kind of love that you and I are to show to one another, no matter how bad it hurts, no matter how much we have to give up of ourselves. And trust me, trust me, I fail at this on a regular basis. This is hard love. This is tough love. The real, this is the tough love. Two things that I see sometimes within the church, it it just seems that, you know, and I know other people probably see us, we can easily love others outside of our fellowship, right? Sometimes it's easier to love people that that are outside, and we seem to save our harshest criticisms for those in our own fellowship that that shouldn't be at all. At all. Ray Ortland says this, and he's talking about the one another's. And he says, Here's some one another's that I can't find in the New Testament. Sanctify one another. <laughs> How about humble one another? How about scrutinize one another? Pressure one another. Embarrass one another. Corner one another. <laughs> that one kind of made me laugh. I'm like, you will do nursery. You can do nursery? I got you. Got you cornered. Interrupt one another. Guilty. Definitely guilty of that one. Defeat one another. Sacrifice one another. Shame one another. Judge one another. Run one another's lives. Confess one another's sins. Intensify one another's sufferings. Point out one another's failings. 
I look at these and I'm thinking, man, I'm, I, sometimes I think I'm better at these one than others. Unbelievers say it all the time. Why are Christians fighting amongst themselves? Why are they devouring each other? Aren't they supposed to be an example of what love is all about? Yes, they're right. Yes. We defame Jesus. We devalue the cross when we fail to love like this. We take away from the cross when we fail to love each other sacrificially. Maybe this is why people don't believe. The second thing is the church should be the absolute epitome of love. We should not say, and I know, I've said this, I've met unbelievers and I'm like, wow, they're... They're more loving than some believers. That shouldn't happen. It shouldn't happen with regards to me, and it shouldn't happen with regards to you. The church of Jesus Christ should be the most loving place on the face of the earth, hands down. Why? Because our hearts have been transformed supernaturally. There's heaven. We've been changed. We've been made alive. We've been given the power of the Holy Spirit, the ability to love like this. But yet, myself included, we fail so often. And not to make us feel guilty about this. But we should understand that our first call The mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ is what? It's love. It's love. How can people see Jesus? This is how. It's like, where's Waldo, right? Where's Jesus? Follow the heart. And maybe that's why people aren't believing because they're not seeing his love. And he says, by this, all men will know you are mine. You belong to me. This takes care of, well, let me see what Jesus looks like. Can I meet him? I'm going to show him to you. Come to my church on a Sunday morning. Come and fellowship with us. You're never going to meet more loving group of people than you will here. This is what Jesus looks like. A life of sacrificial love. A life that has grace on our sins and on our mistakes, on our quirks, on our personalities. A life that looks beyond all of those things and sees Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, the one who loved us in such a way so that you and I can share that love with one another and a love that is to be continued while he's gone. Folks, the heart of our Christianity must be centered 
on the cross continuously. It is in the cross that you and I are to exalt You and I are to boast in, we are to preach the cross, we are to trust the work of the cross. And while He's gone, while we're waiting for His return, we are to continue that ministry, continue that sacrificial love, a cross-shaped love that encourages one another in His absence and reveals what He looks like to a watching world. Father, We love you so much, and you have loved us so much. And Lord, we ask that we do not forget the source of all we are and all we are to be. And in our lives as individuals, in our life as a church, that we exalt the cross of Jesus Christ bringing you glory and bringing love to one another. Lord, help us in this. This is so hard. Lord, help us as we walk this world, a world that doesn't believe in you, and as we walk by faith, not by sight. Help us to continue Jesus' ministry here on earth. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.